Well, life sometimes is full of regrets, that's for sure. And maybe um, there's regrets that you have about something that you did uh, that didn't work out maybe the way you hoped. You know, you got maybe a major that you look back on and you think, um, man, that art major didn't really do me much good. And, uh, or maybe you bought a house or, or a car that turned out to be a lemon and there was no way of telling. And it's like, oh man, this didn't work out. Um, you know, maybe about a week or so ago, um, I made a Jack's pizza and I put on some cheese from our refrigerator, some extra cheese. Um, and come to find out maybe a day later, I'm on the toilet for like hours on end. And so I regretted putting on that extra cheese because that extra cheese was a little old. Um, I do not reject, you know, regret the Jack's pizza though. Jack's pizza, best frozen pizza out there. Um, or maybe you, you, know, you regret doing something just really foolish, like investing in Bitcoin in 2021, at the end of 2021, you know? Or you, you regret not doing something, like investing in Bitcoin in 2008, you know? Um, but most of the times, the regrets that we have are regrets that, that kind of plague our conscience, that plague our soul, that were things that we did that were wrong, that we knew that were wrong, and that caused public shame and humiliation. You know, foot-in-mouth syndrome, maybe as it's called. But this morning, uh, one thing that I want to share with you guys, I came across this story uh, on the podcast of Sean McDowell. Sean came here and he did an equip conference on sex, gender, and the gospel. And on his podcast, he had a man named Joshua Broom. And Joshua Broom grew up in a religious household, but he went his own way. And in the span of six years, he had made over a million dollars and starred in over a thousand films. But ironically, he could not stand to be in public and receive the award for Male Actor of the Year because he was in the adult film industry. And you see, it was this guilt from day one that he began to experience that get, got him swept up into a world that he never thought that he would be in with increasing levels of depression in his own life. And it was only when someone introduced him to the hope that God could define him differently, that his life began to change. And now Joshua is uh, married with three kids and he's pursuing a calling in Christian ministry to share with others what Christ has done for him. And so like Joshua, Paul, who writes Romans, he participated in horrendous public sins. As a Pharisee, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man killing many innocent Christians. In his own words, he would call himself the worst of sinners. And regrets can be powerful in keeping us from receiving Christ and experiencing the fullness of our identity in Christ. And in this passage, we will see the theological grounds for the powerful message of Christ's transformative forgiveness. Paul's main point here is this, is that through faith alone, all can receive the righteousness of God and the joyful blessing of forgiveness of sin. That is his main point. And to kind of uh, walk through this passage together, there's, there's three parts we're going to look at. One is that righteousness is credited apart from our works. Two, that forgiveness is conferred despite our works, our wicked works. And third, that faith now constitutes God's 
new covenant family. These will appear throughout the sermons. Don't worry if you uh, miss them. But, you know, I just want to acknowledge the elephant in the room. We're restarting Romans. And if you were like me, you know, this morning, I, I restarted up my, um, uh, my snowblower, and it took a couple, like, jumps to get going. And maybe it's been a month, and you kind of forgot, like, what did we even talk about in Romans 1 through 3? <clears throat> and so I want to do a flyby of Romans 1 through 3 just to help set the context of what it is that Paul is communicating in this passage. Don't feel like you have to write this all down. This is just to to just get our minds in the right place. So the book of Romans, first and foremost, it is about the gospel. That if Romans has a thesis statement, it'd be verse 16 in chapter 1. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. That Paul, what he is communicating here to the Romans, to the Roman church, is that this message that I'm communicating it is about the gospel, the power of God for salvation for Jew and for Greek. And I want to highlight, you know, Paul has communicated so much up at this point, but I want to you know, highlight eight things that he's already said. And like I said, don't feel like you have to write all this down. You're going to get a hand cramp if you try to do that. Um, so eight things that Paul has communicated thus far in Romans. One is that God displays wrath on sin and on sinners. Verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That God is revealing wrath from heaven against all godlessness. Two, Gentiles or non-Jews, they have no excuse for their sin because God has made it known to them. Continuing verse 19 of chapter 1, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And he's talking specifically about the Gentiles, but this applies to every person, Jew or Gentile. There is no excuse before God. Third, is that the Jews who were given God's law are no better off. They're no better off than the Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, For all who sin without the law will perish without the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That the Jews were under the law, that they were in the covenant of the old covenant of God. And so they are to live under the law, but they break the law. He continues in verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That the Jews, even though that they have the law of God, the words of God, <clears throat> the commandments of God, the revelation of God, they are no better off because they break it. Fourth thing Paul communicates is that the solution is that one needs to cut away sin from the heart. That the solution to this problem is that sin needs to be cut away. Chapter 228, for a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. 
and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. So Paul says that this kind of circumcision you really need is not a physical one, it is a spiritual one. Fifth thing is that while there is benefit in being Jewish or being a Jew, all mankind is under sin. The Jew and the Gentile are both under sin. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what benefit is of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. That being a Jew, it, it just meant you, you had access to the word of God. That God had entrusted your nation with the revelation of himself. That there is a benefit in that. But he continues in verse 9, What then are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. That all mankind is under sin. Six, the law brings knowledge of sin and God's judgment, and it cannot save. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That the law, it exposes us. It exposes our sin. It says, don't do this. And we go and do it. And it reveals that we are lawbreakers. It has no power to save. It has the, the ability to condemn us. Seventh point is that according to the scriptures, the righteousness of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by this, God redeems people, Jew and Gentile. That his thesis statement, this is about the gospel, the power of God for salvation, to both to the Greek and to the Jew. He's, he's coming to the point. He's getting there. Um, but now in chapter 3, 21, he says, but apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets, that the law and the prophets, the entire Old Testament scripture, it has been pointing to this, the righteousness of God in Christ. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So according to the scriptures, righteousness of God, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And lastly, you know, if you kind of go rewind the clock to the last uh, time Darren preached on this, Romans 4, is that justification by faith alone, it is demonstrated through Abraham, the father of faith. Romans 4.2 says, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. That Paul, he's trying to assert this truth, that righteousness is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he wants to connect this to his Jewish audience, that this is not something that, the old, that is in contradiction to the Old Testament. That the Old Testament, it pointed forward to this, that Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises. 
And to start with, he draws out the example of Abraham. You know what? This is, this is the same way it worked in the life of Abraham. And now as we come to this passage, he's going to give another example through the life of David. You know, he's pulling out the big dogs, Abraham and David. You want to make a point to the Jewish people that this is like not in contradiction to the Old Testament? You draw out the big guns, Abraham and David. So verse 6 in Romans 4 The first point here is that righteousness, it is credited apart from works. Romans 4, 6 says, Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And to credit righteousness apart from works, it means that they don't factor at all in the granting of righteousness. That this word, it is a financial term. To credit someone, it is a financial, it, it it's, means that there's no, not that there's no connection between righteousness and works, you know, like, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 talks about how you, if you've been saved, you've been made a new creation in Christ, and this new creation is meant for good works. So this, you know, Paul's not saying that there's no connection between righteousness and works, but what he is saying is that your works don't earn righteousness. And Paul, he's making this point. He's made the point through Abraham, and now he's making the point through David. And Paul does this because he wants to assert that his teaching is not contradictory to the Old Testament Jewish faith, but that it is its fulfillment. And it's like if if you're trying to convince your neighbor, you know, this next Monday at the, uh, you know, caucus and primaries, if you're trying to convince them of who they should vote for, you, you know, if you can pull out a quote from George Washington that candidate blank should be elected. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, that'd be, that'd be awesome, right? Um, I don't know. I don't think you'll ever find that quote. Um, or Abraham Lincoln. Like, you would pull out the most quintessential American figure you can to support your case. And Paul, he is pulling out the big guns here, Abraham and David, to make the point that this is the fulfillment of this Old Testament scriptures. And both Abraham and David, they received covenants from God. That's what makes them so central in the nation of Israel, in the Jewish faith. Uh, God gave Abraham a, a covenant. Um, he said, I'll make you great. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a child, and I'm going to bless the, the entire world through you. And he gives a covenant to King David as well through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to skip ahead here, halfway through verse 11, um, it says, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever." 
And in context, you know, David, he, he's king. He wants to build God a house because God does not have a, a house to, to be worshiped in. And God says, no, no, don't worry about that. We'll take care of that later. Um, and, and Solomon becomes an initial fulfillment, but Solomon does not become the ultimate fulfillment of this covenant. That God promises that his, David's kingdom will endure forever and his throne will be established forever. And both covenants get fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Both covenants become fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul is drawing out these two Old Testament figures because they both receive a covenant and they both point forward to Jesus. But both of these figures are also very flawed. You know, the Old Testament doesn't paint, uh, you know, its, its heroes in very heroic fashion. It exposes their flaws. Abraham, like he lies twice about Sarah not, about Sarah being his wife. And why? It's because there's a high political figure, a king, and he doesn't want, to, and, and the king wants his wife, and, and he's like, ah, ah, well, she's not my wife, so go ahead. Like, uh, you know, and both times God has to intervene and stop this from happening. And, and Abraham, he also, I mean, he takes matters into his own hands and he has a child by another woman, Hagar, instead of his wife, Sarah. So Abraham is a deeply flawed character, but David is also a deeply flawed character. David, he sleeps with another man's wife. You probably know the story, Uriah the Hittite. And he conceives and enacts a plan to have a Uriah killed on the battlefield. And when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, it's not like he's saying like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry I did that. No, what, what Nathan first does, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he has to tell him a story. Tell him a story about, about a poor man and a rich man. And the rich man steals the poor man's only lamb to give it to a guest at a dinner feast. And what David says to that, you know, that man, he says, oh, he becomes infuriated and says, that man deserves to die. Second Samuel 12 says, Nathan replied to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that is not enough, I would have given you more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And so David here, he becomes a central figure. And what we see is that the righteousness, it is apart from works. Brings us to a second point is that forgiveness is conferred despite our works. You might even say in spite of our works. Chapter 4, 
7 and 8 says, blessed are those, you know, Paul's quoting David here, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and in whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. And what Paul is doing here is that he is connecting Genesis 15, 6, the covenant with Abraham, that God credits Abraham with righteousness. He's connecting that with Psalm 32 of David, that blesses the person the Lord will never charge with sin. The Hebrew word for crediting with righteousness, credit, is the same word here in never charge with sin. And we should be kind of careful sometimes when we do word studies and we try to connect different parts of the Bible through like specific words. You can get into some really, really wonky theology. But here, I will just say, we can rest assured that Paul, he, he is taking the scriptures and he's connecting them in a legitimate way because he himself is writing scripture. One really basic interpretive principle when we come to the scriptures is that scripture interprets scripture. And so when we look at the New Testament, a lot of times the New Testament writers, they are reflecting back on the Old Testament and they're giving an explanation and an interpretation of it and they're writing scripture themselves and that this is inspired by God. It is not only their words, it is God's words, inspired by God. And so Paul's point here is that justification, in justification, God not only credits righteousness, he not only gives righteousness, but he withholds crediting our sin to us. He does not credit our sin to us. And the way that we talk about this, this is, uh, by some people, this is described as forensic. It's like just matter of fact. You are this even if you don't feel it. There's another uh, theological word called double imputation. And this is a, a, a thing that we'll probably get into Romans 5 more so, but, but we see hints of it here. That double imputation means this, that we are credited or imputed the righteousness of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he is imputed or credited with our sin. That both of these things happen simultaneously. Paul's point here is just at least God doesn't give it to you. God doesn't credit you with your sin. And he leaves the question open of how is this going to work out. Kind of, you know, told you already, that's okay. Um, but by faith, God imputes righteousness on us and he doesn't impute our sin on us. And what this should result in is that the highest state of happiness can be experienced by those who are forgiven forever. That what David says, he says, blessed or how joyful. It is the highest state of happiness that, that can be described in words in the scripture. And often when citing a psalm, if, if someone is citing like the first line or the first few words of a psalm, uh, often the reader and the writer have in mind the entire psalm. It's like if I were to say to you um, and try to incorporate uh, this, this one line, I have a dream. Immediately, Martin Luther King and the entire speech he gave, even if you don't know the entire speech, 
The entire speech and the gist of it comes into mind and you apply that into your understanding of what I'm going to say in the moment. And so when David is quoting Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2, the Jewish reader and Paul, they're bringing to mind the entire psalm. And so I want to read that with you because it is is important to understanding what Paul is saying. Psalm 32 Verse 1 says, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in a summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you in the way you should go and show you the way you should go. With my eye on you, I will count, give, you count, give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding. That must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Four quick things from this psalm that we learn about forgiveness. One, secret sin weighs heavy on your soul and produces deadlock. That secret sin, when we cherish it, when we hold on to it, it throws our soul into deadlock. What does he say? When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. Second, all sin is ultimately an offense against God. This psalm, it is likely a reflection on what David did with Uriah and, and, and Bathsheba in, in murdering and, and, and his wife and, and taking his wife. And what does he say? He says, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And what he does, it says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That David understood he, he sinned against man, but man is a creation of God. Every person is a creation of God. And to sin against a person is to also sin against their creator. And he is the one with whom we have to do, ultimately. Third, we see in the psalm that forgiveness is granted to those who are sincerely repentant. You know, where David leaves off, or where Paul leaves off, sorry, where Paul leaves off when he's quoting this psalm, he says, how joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity. And the very next line that would have been in his mind and the reader's mind is, and in whose spirit is no deceit. How does the psalm end? It says, shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That the kind of person whom God grants forgiveness is the one who is sincerely repentant. 
Last is that God's forgiveness, it lightens our souls and produces joyful obedience. What does David say? David says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. What an amazing thing a man like that could say. And this psalm begins and ends with a cry to, to just be joyful for the forgiveness of God. And in preparing for this message, I was thinking about the life of John Newton. And John Newton, he was a bit of a, of a rascal of a seaman. Um, after being punished for trying to desert the, the Royal Navy, he fell into a deep depression. He considered killing his captain. He considered killing himself. Eventually, he was transferred to another ship, and he was sold into slavery in West Africa. He was later rescued from that slavery and brought back uh, to his country. And there was a, a severe storm along the way, one in which he almost thought he was going to die. And he prays and he cries out to God for mercy. And upon returning home, he becomes deeply involved in studying the word of God and being involved with the people of God. However, it's not until six years later. So, you know, six years later, in the span of the next six years, he participates three times in transporting slaves on a slave ship. He captains this ship. And those who've studied his life mention that in his spiritual journal, journals during that time, that there is incredible tension in his soul. And it wasn't for another, until another 33 years later that he publicly repudiated the slave trade and became instrumental in its abolition. Reflecting on his life, he writes uh, later, as he's reflecting on this time period, he says, custom, example, and financial interest had blinded my eyes. He acknowledged it was wrong, even though he knew the Lord. And John, he wrote a song about our need for grace, and he titled it, Faith's Review and Expectation. And it's ironic that this would later become the anthem of the anti-slavery movement under a new title called Amazing Grace. And while the song, Amazing Grace, it reminds us of our need for God's grace and forgiveness, the life of John reminds us how God continues to instruct as he saves and leaves people out of sin. That forgiveness is not a blank check to continue in sin, and its joy is experienced as we walk in repentance. What does the psalm say about the person who receives forgiveness? God says, I will instruct you in the way you should go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled by bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. That forgiveness of God, it produces joyful obedience. Last thing in this passage is that faith constitutes God's new covenant family. That faith, it is now the thing that binds together God's new covenant family, his people. Verse 9, Paul asks the question, is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? You know, is it just for the Jew, or is it also for the Gentile? 
For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Paul has already asked this question in chapter 3, you know, and he's just returning to the question. And Paul declares that not only are both justified by faith, but both Jew and Gentile have Abraham as their father. Verse 10 says, in what way then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Abraham was given righteousness before his circumcision. Verse 11 says, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Again, Paul's saying he had that righteousness by faith before his circumcision. And circumcision was meant to not give righteousness, but to reveal the seriousness of the covenant. Picking up again in verse 11 says, this was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. Paul saying, Abraham is the father of faith, to those who are not circumcised, to the Gentile. At verse 12, it says, and he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but also follow in the footsteps of the faith our, our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So verse 12 now says, now he's, so he's the father of the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, and he's the father of the Jews. But not just Jews, not just the circumcised Jews, but the ones who actually follow in the footsteps of the father Abraham. And this is not a new teaching in the New Testament. That in John 8, Jesus makes a similar point. Some people ask him, say, our father is Abraham, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, you would do what Abraham did. But now you're trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, the truth I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. So what Jesus is saying, Jesus points out that Abraham, Abraham humbly received the word of God as truth, just as Jesus is sharing truth. And that true children of Abraham receive the word of God and they should do the same. And Paul's point, Paul's point is very similar. It says, Paul's point is that Abraham demonstrated faith in the word of God. And the true children are those who have a similar faith. See, see the two are, the, they're the same thing. Faith is humbly receiving the word of God as truth. And so Paul and Jesus, they are making the same point. That faith, it is now what constitutes God's new covenant family. That Abraham is the father of the Gentile and he is father of the Jews by faith. And so in closing, there's a few, just two things I want to encourage you in. One is humbly receive the word of God. We should humbly receive the word of God. We should follow in the footsteps of Abraham. Receive the word of God as truth. There's a difference between worldly grief and godly grief. And as we receive this word, we, we need to acknowledge that we are sinners. 2 Corinthians seven ten says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. 
And so there's two types of grief in the world. Worldly grief says, I'm sorry because I was caught. And godly grief says, I'm sorry because it is a sin and offense against God. And I deserve judgment. Worldly grief, it, it produces regret. But godly grief, it produces salvation without regret. It produces repentance. Kevin DeYoung says this, that there is an eternal difference between regret and repentance. Regret feels bad about past sins. Repentance turns from past sins. Most of us are content with regret. We just want to feel bad for a while, have a good cry, enjoying the, in the carthetic experience, bewail our sin and how selfish, stupid, sorry we are, but we don't really want to change. We don't really want to live different than we've been. Godly grief produces true repentance, which leads to salvation. Instead of obsessing over regrets and feeling bad due to the opinions of others, godly grief mourns for sin, turns for sin, and finds forgiveness for sin in Christ. And so we should humbly receive the word of God as is. Paul has made this point through three whole chapters that we are all under sin. Secondly, joyfully receive the word of God. Jesus told his disciples not to rejoice in what they could do for the kingdom of God, but he says to rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Psalm 32 from David. It, it, the bookends of Psalm 32 are joy. To rejoice in your forgiveness of transgressions. Rejoice that your sins are covered. Rejoice your righteous ones, and shout for joy all you upright in heart. See, salvation, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And by faith, God grants righteousness and forgiveness, apart from and in spite of our wicked works. And see, the salvation that the world offers us, it, it either seeks to explain away sin or deaden your sensation of it because it cannot deal with the powerful feelings of grief and regret. And it's only in the gospel of Christ that we can experience a grief for sin that results in freedom from regret and joy in repentance. And it is this gospel that turns murderers into missionaries, slave traders into hymn writers, adult film stars into pastors, and blasphemers into believers. Last time, uh, Darren asked uh, a question in Romans chapter 4. He asked, are you living like the gospel is true? And David is making a very similar point here. And I want to leave you and encourage you to ask this question this week. It's, are you rejoicing like the gospel is true? Let's close in prayer. Father, God, I pray, Lord... Um, God, I know many of us uh, have not sinned in ways like David or, or this guy Joshua or John Newton, that by comparison, our sins might seem somewhat small. But before your eyes, uh, Lord, they separate us from you. God, they are reason for our condemnation. And God, I thank you that in Christ, you paid the penalty for our sins, God, so we could be free, so we could be forgiven. What an amazing truth. 
So Lord, I pray that you would help to renew our hearts in that, God. God, help us to uh, accept it with humility. Help us to accept, accept it with joy. What an amazing thing, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to do that by the power of your spirit. In the name we pray, amen.